if you missed the opening by Joel. Joel is our newest pastor, hasn't even been on staff for a month yet, and he had a big challenge. He said that he invited every staff member to come on Christmas Eve, and everybody said yes. So now we expect you to go to your workplaces, and hopefully everybody will say yes to join you on Christmas Eve as well. The bar has been set, folks. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our church. Thank you for this book of Ezra that's been a joy to study and hopefully a joy to listen to. And as we wrap up our sermon series this morning, may you be glorified. May your Holy Spirit speak to every single one of us in the words we need to hear this day so that you would be honored and we would be strengthened in our walk with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I need the medical professionals to plug your ears for the first 90 seconds or so. How's that for an intro? If you're a nurse, if you're a doctor, if you're a dentist, if you're a specialist, if you're in medical research especially, just check out the scores in the NFL games, whatever you need to do. I have a friend. He hasn't seen a doctor for years. And you might be thinking, how, how old is Dave? Late 30s, early 40s? Yep, you'd nail it. But my friend is, is in his late 60s, and he has not seen a doctor for over 30 years. And if you were to say to him, like, what happened the last time you saw a doctor? He'd say, oh, the doctor said I'm as strong as an ox. And his wife would roll her eyes and say, yeah, now the doctor would say you're as dumb as an ox. Go see a doctor. He hasn't seen anybody. And you're thinking, well, he's seen a dentist. Nope, that's what toothpicks are for. You think, well, he must have like a blood check or, or go for his regular checkup. Nope, if he feels fine, why see a doctor? maybe he's gone to see an optometrist, but I'm pretty sure he even just buys those $10 glasses at the local uh, pharmacy. And if you were to bring it up, he would just laugh and tell you stories. And so one day I said to him, friend, why don't you go see a doctor? And he looked at me and he said, if I feel great, why would I need anybody to tell me I'm not? If I feel great, why would I need anybody to tell me I'm not? How would that work at your regular workplace? Would you be surprised if your boss suddenly came up and said, hey, here's all the things that go wrong? And you said, but we've never spoken about this. Or you're in a relationship and you never ask how the relationship is going. Do you think it would go well? Or or maybe you're a student and you're in class and you're thinking, well, I'm sure everything is just going fine. I've handed in all my papers, but I haven't got any marks back. Or you show up to church and you haven't been there for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Certainly the priest wouldn't have anything to say to me, right? We're currently in the book of Ezra, and if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them up to Ezra chapter 9. If you're brand new to church or watching online, welcome. We're so glad you're here. There's uh, Bibles in the pew racks in front of you, or you can download a Bible app. The uh, Bible has a book of contents as well. You can find Ezra. That's halfway through the Old Testament, meaning it happened before Jesus was born. Big numbers of the chapter numbers, small numbers of the verse numbers. We're going to look at Ezra 9 and 10. But here's the story so far, whether you're brand new or whether you just need a reminder as to what's taken place. The Israelites are not listening to God. And so God sends prophets. He sends people to come and talk to them. And these prophets say, obey God or bad things will happen to you. And they think, ah, that can't possibly be true. So they continue to disobey God. And lo and behold, bad things happen. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon in 586 BC, comes with his incredibly powerful army to Jerusalem, lays down a siege, captures the people, knocks down the altar, knocks down the temple that they were worshiping in, 
and takes hundreds of thousands of people into captivity in Babylon. They're there for 50 years. Finally, the Babylonian empire falls to the ground and a new empire raises up. And the king of this new empire is Cyrus, king of Persia. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, he says, all of you Jews, all of you Israelites spread across my empire, you can go back home. And so 50,000 Jews gather together. They make the 1,000-mile trek on foot from Babylonia, the capital of Persia, all the way to Jerusalem, and they arrive. And Cyrus says to them, go back home, rebuild the altar, rebuild the temple, and start worshiping the God of the Jews. By the end of chapter 6, we have this good news that it's all taken place. The altar is rebuilt, the temple has finally been finished, and the Israelites worship. In Ezra chapter 7, we're finally introduced to the person of Ezra. And we learn that Ezra comes from great lineage. One of his ancestors is Aaron, the brother of Moses, the same Moses who took the Israelites out of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, and took them to the doorstep of the Promised Land. And Ezra looks around, and he says, it's been 60 years. The altar is rebuilt. The temple is rebuilt. But I'm not sure if your hearts are totally turned to God. I'm not sure you're ready for what God has in store for you because you aren't listening to him. This is Ezra chapter 9, 1 and 2. After all these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. This might need a little bit of unpacking, and just so there's zero miscommunication, I've put it up on the PowerPoint screen. The issue here is religious marriage, not ethnic marriage. We tracking? The issue here is religious marriage, not ethnic marriage. I believe God delights when he sees a Caucasian from Canada marry a beautiful Filipino. I believe it brings God great joy when he sees somebody from the Middle East marry somebody from Africa. I believe what this does is it shows how all tribes, nations, languages, and people come together and represent in a beautiful way the kingdom of God when people who worship God come together and get married. The issue here is religious not ethnic. How do we know that? Two quick things. When you open up the New Testament, the book of Matthew, you would probably expect, well, the New Testament will begin with Jesus' birth. But that's not how it starts. Matthew 1 verse 1 says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And you know what's interesting about this genealogy? Throughout the book of Ezra, we've read regularly these lists of people. And do you know who they are? Always Jewish men, but not Matthew. Matthew changes things up. He says, a major shift has happened. Something is changing. It's not just Jewish men. Now we're talking about Jewish women. And not just only Jewish women, there's also women without Jewish heritage. In fact, there's women without Jewish heritage who are actually scandalous. Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, is part of Jesus' line, and Matthew doesn't even try to hide it. This is the same Rahab who let the Israelite spies be kept safe and converted to Judaism after the destruction of Jericho. 
Another one of the women mentioned in Jesus' line is Ruth, a Moabite. And if you still have your Bibles in front of you, you'll notice in that list of the nations in Canaan, they say Moabites. But Ruth is a dedicated follower of the God of Israel. It's not where people are from. It's about who they worship. And that's the second piece. It's a warning against idolatry. And so Moses and the Israelites are walking around the desert for 40 years. They finally arrive at the doorstep of the promised land. And this is what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 12. The Lord your God will cut off before you the nations you are about to invade and dispossess. But when you have driven them out and settled in their land, and after they have been destroyed before you, be careful not to be ensnared by inquiring about their gods, saying, how do these nations serve their God? We'll do the same. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. We worship a God who loves us and who wants to see us enjoy the freedom of what it means by following him. And he recognizes that if the Israelites, his chosen people in the Old Testament before the birth of Jesus, start worshiping the God of the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Moabites and others, they'll do bad things. They'll start worshiping gods who are made of stone and of wood. That ain't helping anybody. They'll start worshiping gods who say, you should offer your children as sacrifices and murder them. They'll start doing things with temple prostitutes that aren't glorifying to God. So instead, listen to how Ezra responds in verses three to five. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garments and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. At the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garments and my cloak torn, fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. For those of you who enjoy taking notes, the first point this morning is we need to acknowledge our sin. Take another look at how verse three begins. As soon as I heard this, as soon as I heard this, what? He rips his clothes, he pulls out his hair, and he sits appalled. I think what's really important to recognize here is what Ezra doesn't do. Ezra doesn't go on some verbal tirade and say, all of you are sinners and this is the horrible things that you have done. And this is important because how many of us have yelled at our kids, whether they're teenagers or little kids, and they've done something wrong and we've just lost our mind and we've yelled at them. How many of us as kids growing up in our homes have been yelled at by our parents thinking, you think that's going to make me do the right thing? How many of us get vengeful thoughts going through our mind? We think the next time that bully bothers me, I'm going to punch him right in the nose. I'm going to wreck his life in social media. But Ezra does nothing like that. There's this physical act of emotional grief. Friends, do you acknowledge your sin? Does the fact that you sin bother you? Does the fact that you sin and it rips apart the relationship you have with God keep you up at night? Does the fact that you sin and your family is getting torn apart and you're losing your friends, does that bother you? Does the fact that you sin and you realize people talk about this freedom in Christ, I don't have it. 
and you think there must be more than this. The first king of Israel is a man by the name of Saul. He's kind of a dud. Second king of Israel is named David, and he's considered the greatest king of all Israel. If you heard that for the very first time, you probably thought to yourself, man, David must just be a gem. He must always do the right thing, always follow God. He keeps all of God's commandments. His people are following God. That's not the case at all. There's this one story, maybe his most famous story, where he's standing on top of his palace and he looks down and he sees this beautiful woman bathing. And he thinks to himself, I want her. And so he has somebody go and get her, brings her to his palace, sleeps with her, and then sends her away. It turns out he makes her pregnant. Then he finds out she's married, so he goes and kills her husband. And if you're thinking, that's a man after God's own heart? That's the greatest king of Israel? How was that possible? It certainly wasn't the great decisions he made, but it's how he responds after the terrible ones. One of David's advisors, a man named Nathan, comes to him, and you have to realize how scary this must be. Going to the king and saying, you have done a horrific act. The king might kill him. And so he starts off with a parable, and he tells this parable, and the king says, well, that man must die. And then this prophet looks at him and says, you are that man. And then David responds, 2 Samuel chapter 12, I have sinned against the Lord. And he starts to weep and fast and prays that God would not take away his baby. We acknowledge our sin, and it's certainly a good start. The next step is confessing of our sins. Um, We've been covering this passage of uh, this book of Ezra, and we've typically been doing about two chapters a week with the occasional um, shortened piece. But today, rather than just focusing on one paragraph, I want to read a larger section. This is Ezra's prayer. Ezra, who is also a man after God's own heart. Ezra, who is a godly priest. Ezra, who loves God with all his heart, his soul, and mind. Ezra, who has not sinned. And yet he takes these personal pronouns. And he recognizes that I am a part of this community. We have sinned. This is our sin. So listen to Ezra chapter 9, verses 6 to 15. You'll notice a shift halfway through where he starts talking to God. Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings, our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands to swords, to captivity, to plundering, to utter shame as it is today. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. We are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set us up in the house of our God to repair its ruins and to give us protection in Judah and Jerusalem. Shifts gears a bit. And now our God... What shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land that you are entering to take possession of is a land impure with the impurity of the people of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons. 
And never seek their peace or prosperity that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any escape? O Lord, God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. I'm uh, currently putting together a project for a class I'm taking in school. And uh, this project is I want to look at uh, four significant streams of Christianity. And so I have friends who are Catholic. I have friends who are charismatic. We as Baptists represent the evangelicals. And this past week, I had coffee with an Anglican priest. And part of this project is to recognize, well, what are the different streams of, of discipleship? And what do we do that's a little bit different than others? And being Baptist, we have our own type of liturgy. A liturgy is, is how we worship on Sundays. And so we sing for about 20 minutes. Uh, we pray for about five minutes. And we have a sermon for about half an hour. There's nothing right or there's nothing, well, I should, there's nothing wrong with what we're doing. It's what we put our focus on. In evangelical church, usually the sermon is the key area. And so I set aside 30 minutes, or pardon me, an hour to meet with uh, this Anglican priest, and it wasn't nearly long enough. It was fascinating. And so he talked about the history of Anglicanism and how it came out of the Reformation and things that took place. And then we talked about what worship looks like and what discipleship looks like. And at an Anglican church, they're going to sing as well, but they're probably going to sing for 10 to 15 minutes. And they're going to preach as well, but they're going to preach for 10 to 15 minutes. But then they're going to read the scriptures for another 10 to 15 minutes. And then they're going to pray for another 10-ish minutes. And then as a congregation, they're going to stand up and give a confession. And it's something in evangelical traditions we don't really do. And I remember being a little bit younger, maybe Bible college, and thinking, why do they do that? Do they actually mean it when they stand up and read something from the PowerPoint screen? Is it actually something from their heart, or do they just do it by rote? Being a little bit removed from my early 20s, I recognize, no, most of my friends who attend Anglican, United, Lutheran, Methodist, Presbyterian churches, they love that piece. Because they stand up and they recognize that we as a congregation and ourselves as individuals have sinned this past week. Our words matter. Our confession matters. And God wants to see our hearts renewed. He wants to see us give all of ourselves to all of him because all of us sin regularly. All of us are lusting over something or someone where we say, I want that. All of us have hurt people with our words, whether we've been frustrated or angry or just flat out lying. All of us are seeking comfort rather than going to helping others. These are real important and need to be confessed, but Ezra is going for something even deeper here in the community. Check out chapter 9, verse 7. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. Our iniquities... Our kings, our priests have been given into the hand of the king of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. This is a sin, says Ezra, that's been going on from generation to generation. It's the sin that Moses warned the people of Israel about before they entered into the promised land. 
It's the sin that made the Israelites wander around the desert for 40 years. It's the sin that God was talking about in the very first commandment. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. And Ezra's looking at the people and he said, don't you get it? This is why we were chased into exile. And now we're back from exile and you're doing the same things all over again. And Christian authors will often refer to this as generational sin or family sin. And we recognize that there's these sin patterns that are going on in our lives, not just from a nation, but in our own lives as well. And you might think, well, where is that in the Bible? Right at the very beginning. In the book of Genesis, we have Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and he's a liar. And he lies regularly. At least twice he says, oh, this isn't my wife, this is my sister. And then he has a son named Isaac, and Isaac is a liar and says the exact same thing. Oh, this, Rebecca, this isn't my wife, this is my sister. And then Isaac and Rebekah have a kid, and his name is Jacob. And the unpacking of Jacob, it means deceiver. And if you read Genesis, you see these heinous lies this man commits, and he does them over and over and over again. And then Jacob has 12 sons of his own. And 10 of his sons come back to him and say, Dad, you'll never guess what happened. Our brother was murdered. I'm really sorry. He wasn't murdered. They sold him into slavery. And so in the book of Genesis alone, we see this sin pattern that happens again and again and again and again. Are there patterns in your family? Are there patterns that you recognize that are taking place in your family's life? Where you go, oh, shoot. Grandma had an affair. My mom had an affair. I had an affair. Grandpa was an alcoholic. Dad was an alcoholic. And I'm an alcoholic. When we gather around the table at Easter or at Christmas or at Thanksgiving or a family event and we look around and go, oh my goodness, all of us are gossiping. And maybe it's not a family sin. Maybe it's not a generational sin. Maybe it's a sin that you're looking at in your own life and you're going, I can't stop doing this. I'm either working way too hard or not nearly enough and it's hurting my family. I can't get over my pornography addiction and I can't have a real relationship. The way that I'm treating people means I'm just leaving a wake of ruined relationships behind me. And I think sometimes in church we talk about the sins that we commit and we often forget about the sins that we omit. And how many of us have been Christians for 10, 20, 30 years and we've never told anybody about Jesus? And we've never invited our neighbors into our house? And we've never invited people to join us on Christmas Eve? And we've never invited somebody to join us for Alpha? We've never served in the local church. We've never given more than a token piece to the church. And we're going, God, maybe I'm an issue. Maybe I'm working through something. And then there's the good news. Do you know the most repeated verse in the Old Testament? But you, O oh God, are forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. There's three major genres in the Old Testament. The law, this verse is in the law. History, it's in the history. Prophets, it's in the prophets. Five times in the Psalms, over and over and over again, a reminder that God we worship is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. And no matter what our sins are, no matter what our family has done, no matter what we've committed or omitted, God is saying, I forgive you. Come to me and receive forgiveness. Perhaps one of the most 
famous scenes from the Oprah Winfrey show is she gets really excited and she looks at her, uh, her fans and he, she says, you get a car, you get a car, you get a car, everybody gets a car and all these people are screaming with excitement. And God looks at us and says, you get forgiveness and you get forgiveness and you get forgiveness and everybody who comes to me gets forgiveness. This is the good news of the gospel. The thief, the enemy, Satan himself comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And Jesus shows up and says, I have come to give you life and to give it to the fullness. We acknowledge our sin. We confess our sin. We take responsibility for our sin. This is Ezra chapter 10, verses 1 to 5. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of all this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task that we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as has been said. So they took the oath together. For those of you who missed last week or just simply need a reminder, I, I said it last week, I think it's important to say again. For Ezra, there is no guilt and there is no manipulation. The idea for the Jewish people to separate from spouses who do not worship the God of Israel comes from the people, not from Ezra. And I think this is wildly important because as I was talking with one of my friends, he said the worst kind of abuse is spiritual abuse. And how many times has the church hurt us and it's painful? Where church leadership gets angry because they were questioned. Where divorce is looked at as the most unpardonable sin. Where there's an abuse of authority. Where people are ostracized for past mistakes. And Ezra says, I'm not doing that here. I see a sin and I'm going to weep. I'm going to fast. And I'm going to pray that God would change the hearts of the people. And I think over the last 15 years, that pendulum has shifted a little bit. Now people are scared to even talk about sin. People are saying that if we talk about sin, well, maybe people won't come back. Maybe they'll recognize something's wrong. And they don't want to be told that. And then Ezra enters the scene, a successful Jew sent by the king of Persia. And all he does is pray. The people come to Ezra and say, we acknowledge our sin. We confess our sin, and we need to take responsibility for our sin. And it costs them something. Earlier this fall, my wife and daughter were going grocery shopping, and it was one of those really, really windy days. And so my wife uh, goes into the parking spot and turns around and says, hey, London, don't open the door. Wham! And she opened, my four-year-old daughter opened the door, it slammed into the car beside us, and it wasn't just one of those little pinprick dents. It's like the size of a coaster. And so my wife acknowledged her sin, went shopping, and then over supper, we laughed at the poor sucker who we hit. You're supposed to laugh. That was a joke. <laughs> no, she didn't. 
She confessed her sin. She wrote it on a piece of paper and she said, hey, we hit your car. We know there's a scrape. We know there's a dent. Here's my phone number. Call us back. When my wife goes grocery shopping, it's usually quite a big bill. This one was an enormous bill. Confessing our sins cost us something. And I don't know if God's spirit is working in your hearts right now or not. I don't know if what's being stirred inside your minds, but I know this, that when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will purify us from all unrighteousness. And if you would like somebody to talk to at the end of the service, there's going to be people all uh, across the front here. There's going to be some women, there's going to be some men, and if you want to talk and you want prayer, we would love to pray with you. And if you're thinking, Dave, yeah, maybe I need to confess something, but I just want prayer for boldness. I want prayer for courage because I want to tell my classmates. I want to tell the people at work about Jesus. We would love to pray for that too. And if you're thinking, man, I just need prayer because I'm hurting, I'm broken inside, we'd love to pray for that too. We would love to have you come forward and there's gonna be about four or five of us at the front to pray with you and to pray for you. And whether there's something that you need to confess or whether you're just thinking, I would love someone to put their hand on my knee or their shoulder and just pray for me, we wanna do that. In Romans 3, 23, we read, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But thankfully, that's not where it ends. Exactly three chapters later in chapter 6, 23, we read, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But even that isn't the end of the promise. Near the end of the scriptures, we read in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Well, we need to take responsibility for the hurt that we've caused to those around us. Jesus offers to take responsibility for our broken relationship with God. And yeah, it's true in Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All but one. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, comes on a rescue mission, comes down from heaven, lives a perfect life, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for all of us. Jesus paid the price that all of us deserve so that all of us might receive the gift that only he deserves. By Jesus taking responsibilities for our sins, all who believe in him will receive eternal life. This is the good news of the Bible. I want to close with this. This whole sermon series over the last seven weeks has been about renewal. And I don't know what God has in store for us, but I know this. Over the last seven weeks, nearly every morning, I have been praying, God, will you bring renewal to our church? Will you bring renewal, whatever that looks like, so that we might see life transformation? The Great Awakening happened in the United States in the, 19, in the 1730s and 40s, and it started with preachers standing up and talking about confession of sin and repenting of that. Americans acknowledged their sin, confessed their sin, and took responsibility for that sin. And a nearly 20-year revival swept across the United States. About 100 years later, in the 1800s, there was a great revival in Scotland that had a great sense of spiritual renewal. It started with a strong sense of moral regeneration. We cannot keep living the way we live. We have to confess the sin that's wrecking our nation. And so the nation of Scotland acknowledged their sin, confessed their sin, took responsibility for their sin, and there was revival in Scotland. Before I came to Ellerslie, I was at a small town in Alberta Beach. 
And in about the 1970s, there was about a two to three year revival. And so I was talking with one of the older people in the congregation and she was in tears. I was in her home. She pointed at her kitchen sink and she said, Dave, I stood right there doing the dishes, looking out into my yard, and I just started weeping because of the sin I had committed and wasn't telling anybody about. So I brought my husband to the revival meeting that night and he became a Christian that evening. I hope you've enjoyed and maybe learned something new from this sermon series on Ezra, this relatively unknown book in the middle of the Old Testament. But if it's simply been about learning something new, then I haven't done my job. Our desire as a staff, our desire as a leadership team, our desire as a church is to see God take over, to see renewal happen, to see renewal happen in our lives, to see renewal happen in our families, to see renewal happen in this church and transform the world. I hope that you want to join us in that mission. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Ezra. And knowing a little bit about the history of our church, God, we pray that you would forgive us for the pride and the arrogance that has happened in years past. Where there has been this spirit of we need to be the best and the biggest and the brightest in the city. And God, we confess that sin. God, we ask that you would take over, that your Holy Spirit would lead us and guide us and with our staff and with our board and with our leadership, that we would listen to what your Spirit is doing inside of our church and inside of our lives and that we would see great renewal. That you would transform lives. That you would see people coming to faith, that you would see people baptized, that we would celebrate and acknowledge the great news of God happening among us. And God, I pray for our church family. And for those of us who are here this morning and they're holding on to something that they know they need to let go. God, I, we pray that you would forgive them. That we as a congregation would confess our sins. That we as a congregation would take responsibility. That we as a congregation would see renewal. That your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. I pray this thing in Jesus' name. Amen.